The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Open with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 35. This morning, we're going to carry over between two chapters, the end of chapter 35 and carry over into the first seven verses or so in chapter 36. So, second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 35 is where we'll be this morning. And let me just go ahead and warn you, um, I've got a lot to say this morning. Uh, You're going to be alarmed when I don't get to the text for a, a good amount of time, but I have a lengthy introduction this morning. And then I have a short sermon to follow, okay? So let me just give you a little bit of hope as I'm laboring and talking on and on, and you're saying, he hasn't even read yet. So it it, it will come, and it won't be as long as you think, but uh, it's going to seem that way. But uh, but let's let's look at this together. Exodus 35, I'm not going to read yet, but the title of this sermon is Enough is Enough. We're in the middle of this series on stewardship. Stewardship being management. We believe that, uh, we looked at last week, God owns everything. Not just our finances, but everything. There's not, there's not anything, any person, place, thing that you could name that is not His. doesn't have His fingerprints on it. You turn over the boot of anything in your life and it's going to have the name of God written on it. Okay, So it's His. We believe that. And so today what we're going to look at in this, this is enough is enough. We're going to turn from God owns everything to now what does it mean for us? What does it mean for giving as we manage what God's placed in our life? How generous should we be? Well, the book of Exodus tells us how God used Moses to free his people from slavery in Egypt. We know the story. It's been made into movies. Even if you've not grown up in the church or been around the church, you kind of know a little bit about this story, the story of the Israelites being led out of Egypt. And it starts out pretty quick. It seems like in an instant, God's going to take those Israelites and just in an instant deliver them from Egypt and lead them right into the promised land overnight. But we know that's not exactly what happened. God takes them out of Egypt in, an, in a beautiful magnificent, powerful way in the crashing of that sea on top of those Egyptians and delivering them through the sea. And he leads them right to the doorstep of the promised land. But then they refuse to go in because they're afraid. The spies are sent in and they all come back except for two and they say, "We, we can't do this. The people are like giants. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. They refuse to go in and they miss out on the blessing of God because they're trusting in their own ability instead of God's. Have you ever stopped to think about how Moses must have felt in that moment? Moses had been given a great promise. He'd been called in a very dramatic way to come and lead the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt and it must have seemed, seemed to Moses like this thing was going pretty quickly as well. I mean, he had had a lot of preparation coming up to this. His, you read about his life, and he had spent many, many, many decades in preparation for this. But it must have seemed like things were going pretty quickly as he led them out, and they come to the promised land, and all of a sudden the thing comes to a halt. 
and how Moses must have felt God had called him, and then it suddenly seemed to fall apart. God had made a promise, and it would take 40 years now to pull it off. And Moses didn't know. He didn't have the luxury of knowing that it would be 40 years, and he wouldn't even have the privilege of going into the land that was promised. This overnight rescue operation suddenly turned into a long, slow, painful experience of trusting God for His provision over time. If you think about it, that's kind of how God works today, isn't it? Sometimes in the middle of your pain and your struggling, God seems to swoop in in an instant and deliver you. And those times are miraculous, and we love those times. But other times, He seems to leave us in the middle of that pain, not leaving us in the sense of abandoning us, but to let us remain in it as He comes through it with us. And there's this experience, this exercise in learning to trust Him in the middle of it. As a church, we can certainly boast uh, of God's faithfulness through the years. In fact, for over 180 years, this church has been pretty much in this location uh, serving the kingdom of God for the advancement of the gospel. Um, You you look at that cabin across the road uh, that's there. That was the original building where those faithful followers of Christ uh, had the vision to start this church 181 years ago. You, go to, you look at that cabin, and maybe if you haven't gone over there, I would encourage you to go over there sometime. Maybe not this afternoon because it looks like it's going to rain, but at some point go over there and go into that cabin and look around and let your mind wander. Walk through the cemetery over there. Now, that seems a little morbid, I guess, but walk through the cemetery and read the headstones and let your mind wander at the faithfulness of God through the years. Think about what must have gone on here. What, what believers have done. What the, the choices they've made. Let your mind just imagine what has taken place in the following of God for 181 years. Then almost six years ago, it seemed for a brief moment as if uh, maybe all of that hundred and at that point 75 years or so had come to a crashing end. Like it maybe had felt like for Moses. When on that morning, January 2nd, 2008, the building that was the sanctuary where we worshiped together as a faith family, where uh, people were married, children were baptized, and all that building caught fire and burned. And they sent fire crews from all over our, our area, and nobody could put that fire out because it was going to go that day. And maybe some of you are sitting here today and you remember, maybe you drove over and you stood in the cemetery across the road and watched it burn and wept tears thinking, what now? Is this all for naught? But then, very quickly, God stirred the hearts of his people and there was a new life that was breathed again into this church family. The life had never left. It was always there. But, but for that instant in the cemetery, watching it burn, those questions were turned quickly to hope. And God began to stir among His people. And for the last six years or so, there have been things that have taken place here that, that continue this journey of God's faithfulness. I've been your pastor here for a little over four years, but even before I got here, things began to change. And let's be honest, as a 
church, there have been some that have felt like that pace of change for the past six years has been just a little too fast. You look at things today and you think, how does a 181-year-old church sing songs like we sing? And how is it that a pastor of a 181-year-old church can dress like he dresses? And if you're honest, some of you would say, boy, the pace of change has been too rapid, too quick. And for some, it was too rapid and too quick, and they have pulled out. For others in the building, there are some of you that would say, I thought we would be further along by now. I thought that we would be somewhere else by now. I I feel like we're going too slow. Maybe you thought we would be further along or in a different place already. But can't we say, wherever we are, whether we're of the crowd that says it's too fast or of the crowd that says it's not fast enough or of the crowd that's somewhere in the middle, can we not say this morning here that God has been faithful? God's been faithful and He's led us all the way. We are where we, at, we're where we are at today because of His providence alone. Can't we also say that we are not where we are going to be? And that by His grace, He is still leading us and making us into something beautiful for His own name. You see, the the danger is, as a church, for us to get to a place where we feel like we have arrived. And this is it, and there is no more, and we are settled, and we are content. Sure, Pastor, I want you to rest in Christ, that we should never rest in the form of being lazy. I want to show you this as I walk through. Today, I, I want to take a few minutes to look at what God is doing and what we are called to do in the area of stewardship and the local church. Our vision statement here at Abner Creek is real people, real worship, real change, real purpose. We haven't read that or said that in a while, but I just want to call you back to it. I want to just remind you again of some reason for why we've chosen those four short statements. First of all, real people. We are in a day, in a place, in the South, where many, many people who live among us in neighborhoods, in houses down the street, they have had experience with the church, and they have been burned way too many times. They have seen too many people be hypocritical as they claim to follow Christ. And yes, we are a church filled with hypocrites. But we know that we need the Savior. We want to increasingly become a culture where it's okay to be real. Where we can let down our guard and stop pretending that we're something that we're not. We are in every way saved if we've trusted Christ but we're not as much conformed to Him as we sometimes let on that we are. And so let's be honest in the fact that yes, we are saved, but we are not what we're going to be, and we need to get real with Him and with one another if we're going to make progress in this. Real worship. We want to hear, have, when we gather together, we want to have worship that's passionate, and worship is not just the songs, it's the, it's the preaching, it's the gathering, it's the giving of money, it's, it's all of that, it's, it's worship. And we want to have this experience where it's real and it's passionate, where we encounter God. 
in the gospel. And it's not some contrived, forced show that happens every week at 10.30. We want to see real change take place. And it's my conviction, it's, I believe yours as well, that the only way people begin to change, their hearts begin to change, is when God changes them. And the way He has chosen to do that is through the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of His Word. So only Jesus can change a person's heart and they will be changed as we proclaim the Gospel. We're going to sustain that. When I come and stand before you in this pulpit, I'm going to come and I'm going to preach the Gospel. When others stand before you in these Sunday school classes, they're going to preach the Gospel to you. When we're interacting with one another in these coffee stations, in the narthex, in the hallways, we're going to be speaking the Gospel to one another. Because we know that the gospel is more than just a one-time encounter where we first enter into this thing called Christianity and then we leave off and go to something else. The gospel is the pool that we have all dove into and we're not getting out of. Because the reality is we wake up with ourselves every morning and we know the sinfulness of our hearts and we need the gospel every day. We need every day to be reminded that it is trust in Christ alone that is our only hope. We'll carry this on, this change will be sustained as we preach the gospel in our Sunday school classes, in our small groups. There are small groups, and some of them you don't even know about that go on, where it's just, it's just a few believers that just get together, some of them in homes, some of them here in this building at different times during the week. And they'll come together, and maybe they'll discuss the sermon that was preached or the Sunday school lesson or maybe a particular passage. And they just talk, and they just build into one another. This change will be fostered by these small groups. It will be fostered by Wednesday nights. I don't know if there's a small group of us that come together on Wednesday nights for for our adult meeting, our prayer time. It's a pretty small group, 30 of us maybe, maybe 40 at times. But what goes on in that room is really pretty powerful. The things that we're discussing and talking about and looking to God's Word and the questions that we're asking and wrestling with are, are fostering change. And I walk away sometimes from Wednesday night more thrilled and excited about what happened in that 30 or 45 minutes than what happens here on Sunday mornings. And if you've not gotten plugged in on Wednesday nights, I I would encourage you, go. Join the conversation there on Wednesday nights. It's good. This change will be fostered in 3M on Wednesday nights with our kids Our kids are learning Scripture. They're hiding Scripture in their heart. We want them, when they leave from us and they go off to school, that when a professor wields a knife and cuts them with liberal thinking of the world, that they will bleed the gospel. That they will have answers. That they just say, no, that's not true. We want to equip them. They're learning Scripture. They're hearing about these people that are giving their lives in service to the gospel all around the world. They're hearing about these missionaries, and they're learning to be missionaries as well. They're learning on Wednesday nights to sing to the glory of God. You saw that a few weeks ago when we brought those children up here, and they led you in worship. This change will be fostered as the student ministry meets on Wednesday nights. Sunday afternoons, Sunday morning, when they come together and they are hearing the gospel over and over. And I'm so thankful for Greg and his teaching pouring into these students and all those that are pouring in there. These students are, let me tell you something, they are getting 
more in their student ministry right now than most will ever know. You hear me on that? I spent almost, almost two decades in youth ministry, and I've seen youth ministry that is filled with fluff and fun and games and pizza and stuffing marshmallows in your mouth and trying to say chubby bunny and all kinds of things. And they're having fun down there, but what they're learning is incredible. And the gospel's being built into them, and they're being changed. There's been a foundation that is being laid And the final vision statement, part of our vision statement is real purpose. And this is where we get into missions. We want to take Christ to our immediate community through strategic events and ministries. Things like Good News Club. This Tuesday we're finishing up Good News Club for this semester. We'll start again in the spring. And if you'd like to join us on that, we'd love to have you. Every week, for ten weeks... We go up to Abner Creek Academy, and as soon as the bell rings, those kids, those that voluntarily come, come down to the cafeteria. We put food on the table for them. They eat a snack and a water. They say a memory verse that they worked on the week before. Then they're divided up. We take them to the restroom, and and that is a chore in itself if you've ever worked with kids. And then we take some of them to hear a Bible story, and I've been teaching through the life of Joseph for the past 10 weeks with them, while others are in the, in the cafeteria and they are singing songs and learning a verse that they'll come back and they'll do next week. And then they switch places and they hear the gospel. In a public school, we get to do this. This is amazing. And, and when we walk into that office, those that are in that office, the principals, the teachers, all the faculty say to us, we're so glad you're here. We love your church. We th- we're so thankful for what you're doing in our community. We're, we're glad to know that, that you are our partner. We want to take Christ to our immediate community through Good News Club and Fall Festival and through the balloon ministry. I, I was out somewhere the other day and I was at a coffee station and, and a guy said to me, Hey, you made my little girl's day the other day. I said, I did? How did I do that? He said, Well, not you. Your church did. I said, Well, how'd they do that? Well, we were over at the barnyard and she walked in and the first thing she said was, Daddy, I want a balloon. And lo lo and behold, I looked up and you were there. And these little balloons that are nothing but just, what are balloons made of? Rubber? Am I right in that? It's probably latex or something. And filled with helium tied to a string. And it's a bridge that allows us to, to talk the gospel with people. To give them a pleasant aroma of Christ in 2013. We do things like Imagine that we're in the middle of right now where we teach Financial Peace University. We've reached out to the community, inviting the community to come and learn God's principles for handling money. District 5, you're going to hear more about that. We, every year at Christmas time, we, we, we sign up and we take so many kids, kids that won't have Christmas maybe any other way, and we as a church, Sunday school classes, individuals get involved and we buy gifts and we say, we want to be just the love of Christ for you. These are, these are material things, worldly things, but we want to use this as a way to express the love of Christ to you. And if you want to get involved with District 5, Travis asked me to make an announcement. I'm going to make it right in the middle of the sermon, Travis. Travis will be out in the narthex uh, after the service today. Uh, he's got one of our shirts on. He'll be out there with a Christmas bag, I think, and you can, you can get more information about District 5. 
This past Easter, we did the By Name initiative where for 30 days we, we listed people by name, we prayed for them, and we invited them to come to church on Easter. We looked for ways to connect with them. We support through our giving Greater Spartanburg Ministries. We support through our giving Three Rivers Baptist Association. Um, we take the gospel to our immediate community through that. We do things like softball and basketball leagues, vacation Bible school, and we have a children's summer musical. We, we do things like uh, the work of the WMU, where little projects through the year with prisoner packets and all sorts of things. These are ways that we're trying to take the gospel to our immediate community because we know the gospel is the only hope. We want to take not only the gospel, take Christ to our immediate community, but we want to take Christ to the nations. We want to do things like ongoing short-term mission trips, and this is where we're lacking. We haven't done a whole lot of ongoing short-term mission trips. I hope to do more in the future. But one of the things that we are doing is we're partnering with the cooperative program, Give to Missionaries in South Carolina, um, in, in the North American Mission Board, that missionaries that are sent out through, through funding that send missionaries all over North America. And part of that funding also goes to the International Mission Board, which sends missionaries all over the world. We do things like Operation Christmas Child and Truck Stop Ministry. The Truck Stop Ministry is, you may think, well, I don't know, you know, I don't know how much good that does. Every, once, once a month, there's a team of our people that go over to the truck stop um, over on 290, right? Um, over there. And truckers stop in there as they weave all across this, this country and they come into that room and they hear some of our people stand up and share the gospel with them. And we don't know where that's going to go. But we're doing that to take Christ to the nations. I want to show you one other way. It's the video, if the computer works. Is it going to work, you think? We are partnering in Toronto, Canada. This is a church, Trinity Life Church. And I want you to hear from these guys, uh, their experience as they plant Trinity Life Church in downtown Toronto. So it was during our first vision trip, um, Lynn and I, we had dinner with a couple that was from Toronto, and we had a great, fantastic evening, um, and it was probably about halfway through our conversation that night that Linda just kind of withdrew. She got code to the conversation and just kind of stopped talking altogether, and that's pretty odd for, uh, for Linda. And so after we had dinner, after we um, said byes and paid our bill, um, uh, after a little bit, I asked Linda what happened and why did she grow code? Why did she stop talking? And she explained to me that um, if we were going to plant a church in Toronto, it was going to be very difficult because that couple and the people all around us seemed very happy and successful without Jesus. And um, how were we going to share Jesus with people who weren't asking to learn more about him, to know him? And uh, that, at that point, I realized the the difficulty in the depth of our call to come to plant a church in Toronto. And so it was at that point that I turned to her and said, well, they're the reason why we need to be here. 
Toronto is a city that is undergoing massive changes. The population is increasing, the city's influence is increasing, and right now the city is focused on an area called Regent Park, the area that we're starting Trinity Life in. It is a diverse area, uh, socioeconomically, religiously, ethnically, and there are many organizations that have moved into this area, businesses, nonprofits that have the purpose of revitalizing the area, of transforming the area. So in many ways, God has chosen this area for us, and He is moving here. The Spirit is moving in Regent Park and is moving through Trinity Life in this area. And we, we want to partner with these organizations. We want to infuse the gospel with what they're doing for the community. Because the people here, they're seeking identity. They're seeking truth, and we have that to offer them in the gospel. It's been truly amazing to see God at work uh, since we've been here in Toronto. You know, God didn't start working when I moved here, when Daniel moved here. Uh, he's been working, and we've seen so many evidences of that since we've been up here. I moved up here uh, just with my family, and then two weeks later I met Daniel and his family, and we decided to do this, this church plant together, and it's been amazing to see God bring a core team together just with our families. And we've met people that are part of our team right now, uh, randomly on the street. We've met them in parks, we've met them in our neighborhoods, we've met them in Starbucks. Uh, and God has continued to add to our team. He's continued to develop relationships and we've seen that he's been working in other people's lives the same time as he's been working in our lives. And it's been amazing to see the spirit move. When we moved here, God gave us the passages of Luke 5 and Luke 11, to have a harvester's mentality and also to pray boldly in the spirit. We've done both those things. We've seen great things happen in the building of a team uh, here at Trinity Life. So we've been here five, six months now. We're learning what it means to be Canadian, what it means to be Torontonian. Our core group is coming together. We're seeing people hear the gospel for the first time. We're seeing people's lives begin to change. And in a couple of months from now, we're going to launch the first expression of Trinity Life Church. But our vision is this, that over the next few years that we want to see more churches um, planted all throughout the neighborhoods of Toronto because we believe that in order to reach Toronto that you need to have churches that look like their neighborhoods, talk like their neighborhoods, they know the issues of the neighborhoods and they live in the places where they worship. And so that's our heart. We want to see church planters and people raised within Trinity Life to begin to look outside throughout all the rest of the city to plant new churches in our city but also throughout the world. And so our vision is that God would use our mustard seed group right now to do kingdom work, to bring renewal in our city. And from our city, we begin to fulfill the great commission all throughout the world. And that is Trinity Life. You see Daniel and Mike there. I spent a good amount of time with Mike on the phone, uh, talking with him before we kind of began to enter into or, or really committed to them. And I want to ask you to pray for Trinity Life. They launched officially back in September. And uh, downtown Toronto is a very, very, very post-Christian worldly city. And so they've got to figure out how to preach Christ without compromising the gospel, but to do so in a, in a place where people are very content without Christ. And they're very pluralistic. They have many, many, many gods that they are following and giving their lives to. And so pray for them. 
Uh, we're going to be sending to them um, money along the way. W- one of the things that we're, the way we're doing this is we're not, we're not taking money from our budget to do this. The uh, Tee It Up for Toronto that we had um, back in, when was that, Doug? September. The proceeds from that will go directly to these guys in Trinity Life to help them work and plant there. You're also going to hear, be hearing more and more in the days to come. They're doing about four different events through the year that they're inviting us, if we want to, to send teams up to help them with. And so you're going to be hearing more about more trips to come. If you'd like to go to Toronto, we would invite you to be praying to head that way. Um, well, I say all of this, I go through all of this in our vision statement before I ever get to the sermon to say this, we have come a long way, but we've got a long way to go. So let's don't get stuck in the middle. We've got a long way to go because there will always be more small groups and more recovery work and more geographical responsibility Deeper dependence on God expressed through prayer. More mission mobilization. More ministry assimilation here. There's always going to be more. But I want to encourage us that God is calling us and He will be faithful. Amen? So let's look at our text this morning as, as this sort of introduces everything. And I promise you, I know that it is 1123 at this moment. And I promise you that it won't be too long. I'm going to zip through this pretty quick. I want to do justice to the text, but I also want to respect your time. So let's look at Exodus chapter 35, and let me begin reading in verse 30. And as I read this, the point of this this section is going, here's the sermon point. God gifts and calls specific people to work in building the church. God gifts and calls specific people to work in building the church. Let's read this, beginning in verse 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I want you to notice there that he calls out someone by name. I don't believe there's any accident that you're here today. You're here today as a result of God calling you, I believe. There's not one of us that's, that's unimportant or unnecessary. Let's go on. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, and in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with, with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence Intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary. Don't miss that. He describes all of what they're going to do in the building of this tabernacle. Remember, they're still in the wilderness here, and they're building this tabernacle. And don't miss that this is a tent, but notice all the detail that's going to go in it. Notice the, notice the, the blue and scarlet and 
purple and all the engraving and the woodworking and the stone carving and all these things. It's all because God is a God of beauty. And He wants His people to see His beauty. And it's in these men, in these men, Bezalel and Oholiab, that He has put in this skill, that He's given them this ability. And they shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab, and every craftsman in whose mind the the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. Now, I say this. God calls, He gifts, and He calls specific people to come and work in the building of the church. I say this, and this should not surprise us. When we come to a passage like this in the Old Testament, does it not does it not mirror what we've, been, what we've seen in the New Testament? What we've specifically seen as we've walked through 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. Does he not there also talk about how he has gifted everyone and he's called us to work in the building up of the church? Listen to these verses. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 12, 11 says, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. 12, 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Chapter 14, 1 Corinthians, verse 26, Let all things be done for building up. See, rooted in the beginning, rooted in God's very DNA, is this this, this subject of building the church for His own glory, taking a people who are not a people and making them a people for His namesake. And when it comes to the church, when I describe all of this, you may sit back and some of you may say, I didn't know we were doing all that. Or maybe you thought, well, we could be doing more. The reality is we can always be doing more. And God's called all of us to jump in. God has gifted you. He has called you to come and work in the building of the church. We're not building a tabernacle anymore, but we are building a gospel work that represents all of heaven to a world that does not know Him. All of us have a job to do. Each of us has been gifted and called by God to tell the bigger story of His beauty, not our own. In the New Testament, there are no sidelines Christians. There are some behind-the-scenes Christians, but there are no sidelines Christians. God gifts and calls specific people to work in building the church. If you're looking for a way to get plugged in, come see me. Let's talk. I've got appointments with, with a few of you already that are wanting to find where you can get plugged in. I would encourage more and more of you to do so. And if it gets overwhelming and too hectic for me, we'll farm that out and we'll put you to work because we want you to... Find the joy of serving in the church. Secondly is this. Former slaves give like former slaves. Now, now let that sink in. Former slaves give like former slaves. Look at verses 3 through 5 of Exodus 36. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen, these craftsmen, 
Bezalel and Oholiab and all those that they are training and teaching, they all come. They, those that, all the craftsmen are doing the, every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough. <laughs> the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. Can you imagine such a problem? Hey, 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 you got to tell these people to quit giving. I mean, they're just bringing too much stuff. We don't, we don't have time to get to everything. They're bringing everything. Just tell them to quit. Can you imagine that problem? I'd love as your pastor to come before you one day and have to make that announcement. To have to issue that rebuke. You're giving too much. Stop it already. I'd love to be able to do that. But it will never happen. But not for the reason that you think it'll never happen. It'll never happen for a couple of reasons. I'll give you the second one in a minute as my last point of this sermon. But the first reason that I'll never come before you and make that announcement is because too many people today say things like, tithe? That's, that's Old Testament. That's what they did under the law. We're, I mean, we're on this side of the cross. I'm a grace giver. I'll never stand before you and make that announcement because too many people are hiding behind grace in order to be stingy and less generous than people were under law. Let's understand. I want you to understand this is a teaching moment. Uh, what giving was like in the Old Testament. Because we hear about the tithe, but we, we don't know everything about it. And, and I want you to be informed this morning. There were different tithes required of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. The first tithe was a 10%. 10% was to be given to support the work of the priests and the Levites. We see this in Numbers 18, verses 21 through 23. I won't read all of it, but he says, To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do. Their service in the tent of meeting so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting lest they bear sin and die. And so the people of Israel were required to give 10% annually to support the work of the priests and the Levites. To carry out the work of Let's, before the cross, let's just, you know, the, the, the temple, but let's carry it forward to New Testament times to support the work of those doing the work of the church. This is the way God set it up and designed it. This was God's way of caring for those who would lead worship. But this was not the only tithe. This was 10% annually. Then there was a second tithe, another 10%. 10% was given to provide for community celebration. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 14. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the, the field year by year, so annually, and before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God. Always. So, let's do the math. 10% plus 10%, 10, 10, is how much? 20, right? So all of a sudden, already, we've gone beyond what we've said they give. They weren't just giving 10%, they were giving 20%. But there was a third tithe. A third tithe is 10% was to be given every three years for the care of the poor and the needy. 
Deuteronomy, again, 14 says, At the end of every three years you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, uh, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So we see here, they're not giving this annually. They're giving this one every three years, at the end of every three years. So now we've got 10 plus 10 is 20. And if you take 10%, then divided by 3, let's say 3.33-something percent. Let's just, let's just acknowledge that scripturally the Israelites were required. They were giving under the law 23% plus of their income. Not only that... They went beyond that, and I want to show you that. This was, this was only the, the floor of their giving. It wasn't the ceiling of their giving. They also gave first fruit offerings. You've read about this. This is not a tithe. This was of their own hearts. This was what they would go above and do on their own accord. This was a first fruit offering where they would take some of the first fruits and give, just as a symbol to say, God, you're sovereign, and you have provided and on top of that, on top of a first fruit offering, not required of them, but they would do, they would then give what was called free will offerings. And that's what we see here in this passage. You need to understand that when we read here in Exodus chapter 36, where they're giving so much that the craftsmen are saying, stop giving already, it's on top of the 23% they've already given. This is the type of giving that we see in the Old Testament. In light of this, should we not be ashamed when we, under the grace of the gospel, argue against the tithe? Do you know that the average Christian in America gives 2.5% to the Lord? When probably those in Israel under the law were giving closer to 30%. We say things like, well, there's no command to tithe in the New Testament, and you're right. You will not find a command to tithe in the New Testament. Jesus does acknowledge it in Luke 11, and he endorses it. But he's never commanding it. But does it make sense that we, under grace, would give 2.5% when those under law gave close to 30%? What was the giving like among the first Christians in the book of Acts? Well, they sold everything they had and gave to any as he had need, is what Acts chapter 2 says. Does that seem obligatory to you? Or does it not seem like celebration? Does it not seem like those that had come through the exodus, those that had been led out of captivity, does it not seem like they were giving like former slaves, understanding what they had been freed from, Does it not seem in Acts 2 like those early Christians were eager to give away what they had because they knew what they had been given in Christ? Former slaves give like former slaves. It's only those people who don't understand the freedom that we have been given in Christ who hoard our our possessions. Are we any less free than they are? I wrote this out, hear me. Was our transference from the slavery of sin and death and the wrath of an infinitely holy God to the freedom of no more condemnation and the right to be called children of God not a thousand times more valuable than theirs? 
Should Christians not be the most generous people on the planet? Should we not give like former slaves? Which brings me to my last point. The second reason why I will never come before you and make an announcement that you can stop giving because we have more than we need is because their task in Exodus 36 was decidedly different from ours. Verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 36, Moses gave the command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. You need to see that their work was limited in scope. Their work was rooted in their nationality. Because they were the nation of Israel, their work was largely familial. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 6 where they're they're charged to pass this down to their children and their children's children. It stayed within the bounds of Israel. But we have no such bounds. It was promised that they would be a blessing to all nations, but they weren't called to reach the nations. We, on the other hand, have been given the Great Commission. We have been called to go and make disciples of all nations. So you will never hear me say, stop giving. We have all that we need. We have more than enough to do what God's called us to do because I'm telling you, until Jesus comes back, there will always be more than we could do for the kingdom of God. There will always be more people who need to hear the gospel. There will always be more missionaries to send. There will always be more sermons to preach. There will always be more disciples to be made. There will always be more poor and needy to be cared for in the name of Christ. Philip Graham Ryken, in his commentary on Exodus, starts out his chapter on this section with these words. The Israelites had constructed many buildings, but they had never built anything quite like this, speaking of the tabernacle. Their other buildings were all over Egypt, but this one was out in the wilderness. The others were built on the backs of slaves. This one was made by free hands. The others were made of rock and stone. This one was made with their own treasures. The others were for the glory of Pharaoh. This one was for the glory of God. The tabernacle was designed by God Himself and built to tell the story of His salvation. Its layout and furnishings showed how sinful people could approach a holy God by offering an atoning sacrifice. This was all in preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ. In becoming a man, Jesus became the true tabernacle, the dwelling place for God. And through His death on the cross, Jesus made the atoning sacrifice for our sins, bringing us into a relationship with God that will last forever. So church, in light of this, should our giving be less than theirs? Should we give in a more stingy way than these former slaves? who were liberated from a pagan earthly king? Or should the fact that we have been liberated from the devil himself, from sin and death and the wrath of an infinitely holy God, should that not motivate us 
to try to outgive God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would take what has been said today and God, that you would drive it home. Lord, let it not be misunderstood or heard in a wrong spirit. But God, I pray that you would work through the power of your spirit to apply this in the lives of those who are yours. And God, that, we, that you would work in us to conform us to the image of Christ in the way that we give. The one who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped made himself nothing, humbled himself, becoming a servant even to the point of death, death on a cross, so that we might be free. Lord, let us be givers like that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to give you an opportunity to just think about what's been said, to process this, to spend some time where you are, just asking God to help you to see the truth in this and process it, to hang on to it, that it would get deep into the marrow of your soul. Ethan is going to play, um, and he'll invite you to stand or sing or, or something along the way. But more than following Ethan, we want you to follow God. We want you to take this seriously because I've said it many, many times over the last few weeks, but a sermon is not complete until it's obeyed. So what is it going to take for you to obey this sermon? We're under grace. If you're, if you're in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. But that in itself, Paul says in Philippians 3, because he has laid hold of us, should cause us to seek to lay hold of the things that he's called us to. So as your pastor, I'm lovingly challenging you in this. Let's do whatever it takes to follow our God. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.